Well, greetings. Uh, thank you all so much for the opportunity to be here. I uh, give you the warmest greetings from your friends at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, David Centers is one of my close friends. A group of us, five of us, get together for a bi-monthly Zoom call to check in on each other, and he gives me great reports of you. Uh, he loves being your pastor. You're, you're very well loved by David. So thank you for the opportunity to preach God's Word to you this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn in it to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. We'll read verses 15 to 20 this morning. And if you ever forget where that is, uh, Pepsi, Philippians, uh, Ephesians, or, uh, or it's General Electric Power Company. So it's uh, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. See, it's good for me too. So turn your Bibles to Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20. Before I read, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your inerrant and infallible word. We thank you that you're a God of truth and that you have given us truth, truth that we can cling to, truth that is unalloyed, it's not mixed with error, and so we can trust you. And so, Father, we pray that if there are any hearts that have not trusted you this morning, that through the ministry of your Spirit, you would convert the sinner's heart, taking out that heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh that they may hear, that they may know, and that they may experience the love that God has for guilty sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. This is God's word. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Until the late 16th century, the consensus among scientists, mathematicians, and astronomers on the motion of the heavenly bodies was that everything we see in the night sky revolves around the earth, what we call the geocentric conception of the universe. Though there were seed thoughts of a different model present among early thinkers, particularly among the Muslims and the Greeks, it wasn't until a man named Nicolaus Copernicus offered his convincing mathematical proofs that the thinking began to shift from a geocentric an Earth-centered model of the universe to a heliocentric model of the universe. That is, that the universe revolves around the sun. This period, history calls the Copernican Revolution, when the world realized that the universe, in fact, did not revolve around it. In our text this morning, I would argue that these five simple verses ought to have such a revolutionary effect upon the hearts and minds of all that read them. By nature, 
We are an ego-centric people. We think of ourselves first and foremost. When we rise out of bed in the morning, our thoughts are on our to-dos, on our aspirations, our goals, satisfying our dreams. And whether we consciously think this or say it out loud, we live our lives in pursuit of satisfying our own desires, even if it means stepping on other people's toes in the process. Because of sin and its ravaging effects upon the world, we are a people turned in on themselves, an egocentric people. But what Paul does in verses 15 to 20 is he shakes us out of this egocentric mindset and he gives us a Christocentric mindset. He's saying to the Colossians, he's saying to everyone who reads this letter that the world does not revolve around you, it does not revolve around me, it revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ the firstborn of all creation, the creator of all things, visible and invisible, the firstborn from the dead, the one who is the express image of the Father. The world was made for, and it is to be unto Jesus Christ. The temptation that's facing the Colossian church at this time is that of false worship. The temptation is false worship. False worship is on the prowl because there are some that are planting in these insidious seeds of false worship among the Colossians, saying that what you can do is you can worship Jesus Christ, sure, but you should also worship the angels. You should also worship angels. Colossians 2, verse 18. Paul tells them, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. In the same way that the writer of Hebrews, his extended argument that spans the whole book is, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the temple. He's superior to the sacrifices. So Paul is telling us in the book of Colossians, Jesus is superior to angels, to all created beings, for he is the creator, the one through whom all things live and move and have their being. Paul is giving us a Christocentric mindset. It ought to be revolutionary. All glory, laud, and honor are due to our Redeemer King, as the hymn says. Amen? So what I want you to see in the text this morning is just this very simple truth. I want you to see that both creation and salvation are performed through and unto the glorious person of Jesus Christ. That both creation and salvation are performed through and unto the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Now, I use those two prepositions, through and unto, because there is this very clear um, twofold structure that you can find in the text. There's these two prepositions and also creation and salvation. Look at your Bibles for a moment. Notice how in verse 15, Jesus is described as being the firstborn of all creation. We'll talk about what that means, but commentators are pretty unified in believing that verses 15 to 20 are, in fact, an early song. This is a hymn of the early church. It has that familiar structure. So in verse 15, Jesus is called the firstborn from creation. And then jump down to verse 18. He's the firstborn again, but the firstborn of the dead. So these will be our two stanzas. These will be our two points this morning. We see first that creation is through and unto Jesus Christ, 15 to 17. And then we see that salvation, that the resurrection and how that secured our salvation, that that's through and unto Jesus Christ in verses 18 to 20. 
Now, look back at your Bibles. Verse 15, the first thing we learn of Christ is that creation is through him. Now, who is he? Verse 15 tells us. He is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I could have preached a sermon just on this one verse alone, but uh, we would have lost that superstructure. But that first half there, he is the image of the invisible God, would have been shocking to Paul's hearers. That the invisible God is imaged, that he is, is seen. Now, it's amazing because you see in verse 15 here that he is the image of the invisible God. This tells us that God has been made manifest through the incarnation of the Son. Jesus said to his disciple Philip in John 14, he asked Jesus, um, how is it that you're going to the Father? I mean, how will we know the way? And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is imaging the Father. He is the express image of the Father. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. I love that language. Not the inferior imprint, but the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's creation again. And John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You see, what the Bible is laboring to tell us is that the invisible God has been made manifest through Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is himself fully God. That's what John says. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That God is invisible tells us two things. One, that we would have no saving knowledge of him had he not first revealed himself to us. God is not like the idols of the nations. Our God is spirit. The children's catechism asks, does God have a body? No, God does not have a body like man. You can't see God. And so for us to see and to know God, we know him through Jesus Christ. And this is not an inferior expression of God. The Son is not a mode or a manner in which the Father reveals himself. The Son is a distinct person. We're Trinitarians. We believe in one essence, three persons, a triune God. And that this Son, who is co-eternal, co-glorious, and co-worthy of your worship and mine, that the Father sent his best. The Father didn't give us the leftovers of his grace. He gave us the first fruits. He gave us his son, his beloved son, that we may be saved through him. And it's through this son, verse 16 tells us, that everything that you see came to be. Everything came to be through the son. For by or in him, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Again, the temptation among the Colossians is to worship angels. Paul is saying, don't worship angels. Even they were made by the Son. They're invisible, sure. They're celestial beings, it's true, but they're made by him, and so worship the creator, not the creature. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
All things were created through him. That is, with reference to him. William Hendrickson, he writes of this verse, as two walls, and the bricks in these walls are arranged in relation to the cornerstone. I know you're going to have a building project soon, so here's some architecture. There's a cornerstone that ensures that the two walls are plumb, that they're straight, and everything derives its direction from this cornerstone. So it is in relation to Christ that all things were originally created. Everything is made in reference to Christ. And through him, this speaks of his agency. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And this is a death nail to those who uh, call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not witnessing to the true Jehovah. They're witnessing to a creature. But that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the Christ of Scripture. For all things were made through him. He cannot make himself. Everything was made through Christ. Verse 17 says it explicitly. And he is before all things. He's before all things. Making of all things is his work of creation, whether visible or invisible. And it's not just that he made everything, steps back, wound it up and says, hey, now I'll let you go. No, moment by moment, day by day, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, 17b. And in him, all things hold together. Have you forgotten that, perhaps, that all things are held together right now by Christ? Westminster Confession of Faith 5.1, it says of God's providence that God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. He holds all things in his hands, and he does all things well. At Westminster, we actually just completed a building renovation of our own. Uh, everything basically just went down to the studs. We kept the footprint, but we kept little else. And it was a five-month process and years of preparation that went into it before that, and I learned through this process, that I'm not a detail person. I'm more of a big picture guy. Actually, our uh, building representative, our owner's representative said, you're more of a big picture guy. You could leave the details to me, and I'm very happy to. <laughs> but our God is not just a big picture God. He's a big picture God, and he's a detail God. They say the devil's in the details. No, God is in the details. He is in the details of the mundane portions of your life, those little frustrations, what you feel are interruptions to your great plan for your life. God says, no, this is my plan, and by these inconveniences, these annoyances, these shortcomings, these unexpected circumstances, I am refining you as a refiner finds gold. He holds all things in his hands. And so all things are to him, Verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. All things were made through him, and so they are unto him. They are for him. Now, firstborn of all creation, does that not lend some credence to what 
the Arians or the Jehovah's Witnesses say and say, look, he's the firstborn. In the same way that sons are born of their fathers, there was a time when sons were not. That was a little ditty that the Arians used to sing. There was a time when the son was not. And that's actually where our Gloria Patri comes from. It's a retort to the little ditty of the Arians. As it was in the beginning, so it is and never shall be, world without end. Now, the firstborn does not mean first creature. You have to be very clear. Firstborn means uh, the first place of privilege. In the same way that uh, the sons, or the firstborn sons in the Old Testament would stand to inherit and have that place of privilege when it came to their father's estate, so we say that Christ is the heir of all creation. He's at the father's right hand. He stands to inherit everything. Everything is for him. Everything is to him. We're speaking of Christ's peculiar privileges as the Son of God. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed, Hebrews 1 says, the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. And verse 16 says it so clearly, all things were created for him. Whether in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, all things were created through him and for him. Now, what do we do in response to this great truth that creation is through Christ and under Christ? Well, if all things are made through him and for him, then it stands to reason, doesn't it, that all things in your life and mine are to be done to his glory and his praise. That there's no facet, there's no arena of your life so significant or so insignificant that it is not to be done in reference to the glory and out of gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. All things is repeated four times in the first three verses. All things, all things, all things, all things. And so he deserves all praise. Our lives ought to be marked by thanksgiving. When you go into your workplace and your unbelieving co-workers, if they're asked, tell me about your Christian co-worker. Tell me about this woman. Tell me about this man. How do they carry themselves? Uh, what's their normal way? How does their conversation come out? That person ought to be able to say that this person is a thankful person. This person is marked by gratitude and thanksgiving toward their God. Indeed, we should be. Calvin tells us that Creation doesn't just tell us, Romans 1 style, that God is, but that God is kind. But that God is kind to us. Even post-fall, when he said to Adam and Eve that by the sweat of your brow you're going to reap fruit from this earth, but it's going to be with, with briars and thistles, God is still kind to us. God still can give us satisfaction in our work and even in our toil. And so if all things are from God, and if God is kind to us, and he's especially kind, savingly kind to his chosen people, then what Calvin says is that we must learn to expect and ask all things from him and thankfully ascribe to him whatever we receive. We pray the Lord's Prayer in church, don't we? Give us this day our daily bread. There is nothing that comes to us automatically. Every gift, every grace, every little 
pleasure that you enjoy is a gift from you given by the hand of God himself. There is no pleasure, there is no enjoyment that exists natively and intrinsically in the things of this world. It is by the blessing of God that we can enjoy what he has given us. We ought to be a people marked by gratitude, not just for the gifts, but the ability to enjoy them for what they are as tokens of God's paternal kindness to us. And when we remember that all things are in God's hands, that he holds all things together, doesn't that quiet your heart? Doesn't that reassure you that no matter what befalls you, that it's all well within the control of your loving Heavenly Father and your Savior? We teach our children this song when they're young, don't we? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. Why do we teach that to our kids when they're so young? Because we're trying to impress upon them that truth that whatever befalls us is not contrary to God's plan, but it is according to it. And although it is mysterious, although it transcends your imagination and mine, God is working all things out for the Son's glory and for your good. And so we can live in this world, fallen as it is, as Travis prayed. And even as we long for the day when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, with the same readiness with which the angels do the will of the Father, we long for God to renew and to restore this earth to its right place. We can pray and we can be assured that all things are working for good. All men, whether angels, um, uh, whether wicked angels, you think of Satan's tempting Job, Judas's betraying of Jesus, you think of evil men throughout history, everything is terminating to that great point when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All things are in the process of giving way to the glory of Jesus. So creation is through him and it is unto him. And then we come secondly, speaking of this preeminent Christ, to verses 18 and 19, where we see that salvation is through him and it is unto him. Salvation is through him. It is from Jesus Christ. Verse 18, look at your Bibles. And he is the head of the body, the church. Again, what very well could be a standalone sermon, but when we think of a head, I think our minds are instantly brought back to what Paul has written elsewhere to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he speaks of one body with many members. One body with many members. And it would have been the thinking at this time, and I think it is for us as well, that the head is like the control center for the rest of the body. That if you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off, that means that you're not thinking, and that means you won't live long. But when we say that Christ is the head of the body, we're saying that he is the animating principle. That he is the one that gives life and coherence and motion and vitality to all of the members, whether we be hands, feet, mouths, eyes, that he is the head. The Protestant Reformation was willing to die on this very hill, that there is only one head of the church, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That salvation comes through no man, but through the God-man, the Lord Jesus, 
and that he is the one head of his body throughout the world. He is the authority, the final authority, in all things, and he shares this place of privilege with no other. We see that salvation is through him, that it comes through the head, through our head and our authority, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see again that he's equal with the Father, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Do you see why Paul keeps reiterating this now? Why he keeps saying that he is the firstborn from all creation, that he's the image of the invisible God, that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, because he's stressing that Jesus is not God Jr. He's not God Jr. It's not like a podium where you have third place is the Holy Spirit, second place is the Son, and then first place is God the Father. No, they're all co-eternal, equal in power and glory and worthy of your worship. And so it would be foolish, wouldn't it, to turn our eyes to any other, to whether they be angels or men. No, we have in Christ the fullness of God. And so we ought to receive the fullness of our worship. He and the Father are one. And all reconciliation comes through him. Verse 20, through him, through this one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, through him he reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. Now, very clearly, this text is not teaching on universalism. It's simply teaching that at the last day, when Jesus returns and the book of life is opened and he separates the sheep from the goats, all things on earth and in heaven will be made right. That God's justice will not be confined to just a particular locale or to just one place upon the earth, but that heaven and earth, that the cosmos will be restored and renewed. And we learn that the only thing that's going to bring about this eschatological, this end-all, be-all kind of peace is the cross of Jesus Christ. There are countless calls throughout the world, aren't there, for peace. For peace, for love, for unity. And it's uh, one thing to just call for it, but only God in Christ has offered us the way to achieve true and lasting peace. And it comes through the blood of the cross. It comes through Christ's shed blood, wherein we have peace with God. We have joy in the Holy Coast. We have peace of conscience, knowing that our debts have been settled, that we've done our soul business, as one of my preachers used to say. He would ask, have you done your soul business with God yet? Have your debts been settled? Do you have peace with God? Until you have that peace with God, you will not have peace with man. It's impossible. It is impossible. And so this peace is made through Christ. It's through the blood of his cross and through his glorious resurrection. That's what that note there about being the firstborn from the dead means. Firstborn from the dead means that he's in the place of first importance. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say that he's the first fruits of our resurrection. Neil Stewart, I believe, is a friend of this church. Is that, am I right in saying that, Travis? Yes, he's a friend. Yeah. And Neil, I think, had the best illustration that I've ever heard of union with Christ. 
and how his resurrection is the forerunner of our own. He said, for those of you that like sewing, wherever the needle goes, the thread follows. And so when the Bible says that Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection, he's saying that because Christ was resurrected, there's no question that by virtue of this inseparable bond and tie, we too will be resurrected with him. And so because he is the firstborn from the dead, we will follow after him in the train of his resurrection. He is the preeminent one. His resurrection is the most important one of all. 1 Corinthians 15 again. If there is no resurrection of Christ, then we're of all people most to be pitied. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. He is the one to whom all praise is due as the effector and the guarantor of our resurrection. Salvation, resurrection, and all glory that's tied up in it is oriented toward Jesus Christ. Three applications as we conclude. The first is, is that if salvation is indeed through him, that he does not need your efforts or mine to complete our salvation, then that means that all glory for our salvation is to be unto him. Amen? That when people look at us, the great story about our lives is not us, it's Christ. When you give your testimony, while it's true that no two of us came to Christ in exactly the same manner. It's one of my favorite things whenever we have new members at the church. Invariably, we have people that came to Christ as adults. We have people that were born and raised and received covenant promises from their early of days. We have people from other countries. While we're all called to Christ um, from our various backgrounds, we're all called to Christ. And so we testify to the work that he has done for us and how we rest and we trust in him. The glory is to be to him. And this inspires true humility in our hearts and minds. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. And so there should be no name under heaven that we give more glory to than that of Jesus Christ. Salvation is unto his glory. And we should make that known to the world. And that Christ has come and he's saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That he is a, a savior who saved people from all four corners of the world. This glorious name of Christ is to be extolled by us. We are to exalt him. And the second application, we are to abase ourselves. We realize that the world does not revolve around us. And so we orient everything about our hearts and our minds and our lives to Jesus. If you're a businessman, you should be the best businessman for Christ. If you're a stay-at-home mother, you should be the best stay-at-home mother for Christ. If you're a student, you should discipline yourself and you should give the best of your efforts to your education unto Christ. Everything that we do is to be to him. What is man's chief end? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this is something that I, even the preacher needs to discipline himself. 
that the most glorious thing um, is not himself. It's not what he has to say, but it's who he bears witness to, to Jesus Christ. He must increase, we must decrease. And so I would encourage you, get yourself into this discipline. When you wake up in the morning, it's so easy to hit the alarm, to start checking your phone, look at your text messages, check on your email, get ready for the day. It's really easy to get lost in all of the details and just to be so horizontally goal-oriented that you can miss the vertical goal. To glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. Ask yourself when you wake up in the morning, for whom do I live today? For whom am I living today? And third and finally, by way of application, for those of you who doubt your salvation, uh, for those of you who lack assurance of salvation and you see yourself, you see your sin, you say, I've been professing the Lord Jesus Christ for so long and I wonder if he can keep me, I wonder if I was ever a Christian, remember that this Christ, that this preeminent one, the image of the invisible God, the one who spoke creation into being, all things out of nothing, this one who came and died and resurrected from the dead, on the third day, that this is the one who keeps you. Salvation is not from you, it is from Christ, and he never reneges, he never withdraws his grace. Your salvation is an inheritance given to you and kept in heaven for you by God in Christ. You can never be lost, for Christ never loses a one. He is the good shepherd who knows his sheep, accounts for every one of them. And even when you are wayward, he leaves the 99 and he follows after you. This Christ, this glorious person of Christ is mindful of you. Take heart. Take heart. This Christocentric mindset is what every person in the world needs. By nature, we are egocentric. We are turned in on self. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ, who was mindful of us, who gave his life in the sinner's stead, has come to give us a Christocentric mindset. He's come to fix our eyes upon him as our only savior, as our exemplar, as our pattern, as the one after whose image we are being renewed and remade every single day. And so I would say as we conclude, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Just behold him. If you ever forget, if you ever forget how glorious Jesus is, if you ever think that the Christian life is just mundane and that it's ordinary, I would implore you, turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1 and just read verses 15 to 20 until it sinks in. This Jesus Christ has called the world into being. This Jesus Christ has come to be the sinner's savior. And this Jesus Christ extends to you the free offer of the gospel even this morning. Even if you have rejected the gospel call to repent of your sins and turn unto Christ today, up until this day, let this be the day of your salvation. Turn unto Jesus Christ, for his promise of the gospel is ever true. All who seek him will find him. All who knock, the door will be answered. He will come to any and all who call out to his name in saving faith. Creation and salvation 
Everything is through him and to him. And so I would call upon you today, have all of your life, all of your being, all your heart, soul, strength, and mind go to him today. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you. We thank you for that great love with which you loved us. It covenanting with the Son and the Spirit to send Christ Jesus into the world to be our Savior. Or we know that the Son is the great creator and that we marred and we broke his creation in our sinning against him in the garden. And yet you are a God of grace in sending that Son to redeem us from our slavish bondage to sin and to give us life and that abundantly in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that if there are any gathered here this morning who only know you as creator, who only have your law written upon their hearts, bearing witness to them that they are guilty, that they have fallen short of your glory, would you convince them through the power of the Spirit this morning that you are a God of grace? That you sent Christ, who is not only the creator, but God in Christ, who is our redeemer, who died, who was risen from the dead, and who is reconciling to himself all things, all things, whether in heaven and on earth, he has made peace by the blood of his cross. And so, Father, we pray that they would find that peace this morning. We pray that you would convict and convert that those that are in Christ, that you would build them up in holiness and comfort. Grow our faith, Lord, unto our salvation and unto the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.